0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus Membership. Hello, and welcome to the drug that debunks free will episode of Slate Money your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And most excitingly, I have some just news for you coming in on very short notice to be amazing as ever. We have the great Kathy O'Neill. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Felix. Great to be here.
0: Kathy, welcome back. You are the OG co-host of Slate Money. You know these vicinities very well.
1: Do you know it's like the first time I've visited in a while where I'm not talking about a sex toy. Unless you want to talk about a <laughs> sex toy. I mean, that's fine too. We
0: we it's true. We we do a bunch of Kathy O'Neill stuff on this episode. We we talk about weight loss, we talk about algorithms. Um, we have a whole Slate Plus segment on etiquette and whether you can DM people in the middle of the night. Um, you and I are right about this. Emily and no, Elizabeth no. are no. wrong.
1: No. Um, facts, Fact. <laughs> facts. That nope. checks out, that checks out.
0: We, uh, we also have a segment on the New York Stock Exchange and flash crashes and what's going on right there. But yeah, it's just amazing to have Kathy back. Welcome back.
1: Thank you. I bring me back anytime.
0: And we will bring you back soon. And in the meantime, yeah, make sure you listen all the way through to the Slate Plus, because we need uh, we need your votes, people. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So we haven't had a regular episode of Slate Money where we just talk about the news for a couple of weeks. But the big news that happened a couple of weeks ago, a week and a half ago, something like that, was that the entire fucking stock market broke. And in the way of such things, it merited like small headlines on page 16 of the business section or something. And no one seemed to care. But shouldn't we care about this, Um, Kathy?
1: Um, Personally, I didn't even know it happened until you invited me to speak (laughs) uh, on plate money. This is,
0: okay, this is, you have have completely... uh, proved my point here now that you know that it happened yes is this like a curious intellectual thing for you or do you think it matters
1: i don't think it matters and i'll tell you why like when the flash crash happened like whatever that was 10 years ago or something um it did seem important um but but at the same time it sort of after the fact it seemed like a lot of the sort of bad trades that it that happened as a cause of the flash crash were were like corrected um. So now I kind of have this theory that these momentary blips in the market can most most of the time mostly get fixed by investors that can probably afford it. So it's just not a big deal to me. It's not as if it's like a fundamental weakness of the economy that we're all going to care about. Right.
0: So let's do a quick recap first, which is basically that, well, The stock market broke. The prices weren't clearing at sensible prices. It was basically a mini flash crash that lasted for a few minutes. And you're absolutely right that in the wake of it, the New York Stock Exchange tore up a whole bunch of trades that had happened at very outlandish prices. And so the people who were harmed the most probably may not have been harmed quite as much as they initially might have feared. And in fact, one of the reasons I think you're absolutely right that people don't care very much about these things is that it's hard to identify victims, because for every buyer, there's a seller, you know, for everyone who sold at a ridiculously low price, someone else bought at a ridiculously low price, there was a winner and a loser, and they don't fall into easy buckets of like the people who lost were like this, and the people who bought, who who gained were like that. It's not like the high-frequency traders made lots of money and the big, you know, real money investors lost, lost lots of money or anything like that. And so without an identifiable victim or some kind of poster child for like, this is why it's bad, like, yeah, as you say, people don't seem to care this much. Um, but I do think it's bad, and I'm going to talk about why. But let me do a quick gut check with Elizabeth first. Do you care about this?
2: Not really. I, I feel like anything <laughs> that doesn't produce just uh, you know a cascading series of disasters, I, I, I think I care less about. So,
0: Emily.
3: Yeah, I care about it.
0: Good. Okay, <laughs> Emily and I can can be on the this matters side of things. Emily, what's your big picture, like why we should care about this?
3: Well. A lot of our economy, the stock market does matter to our economy in ways, for reasons. And the error here was caused by someone not being at work to push a button, basically, to, to <laughs> shut off the system. Yeah. So this really important market has this vulnerability where like, it's up to a person and a switch at the end of the day. And I was sort of surprised by that. And we'll talk to Kathy later about algorithms and AI and like the pitfalls there. But this seems like the other end of that, the pitfalls of just having humans in charge of things and how they screw up. And it also bothered me how the NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange, messaged around this because at first they called it a technical glitch, and then they called it um, a manual error error, a manual error involving its disaster recovery configuration. Again, it was like a lady who didn't have her job anymore, so if no one turned off the thingy. Like it, it, it's <laughs> just, I think, worth. Thinking and talking about and having them look into it so things like that don't happen again because, yeah, no one got hurt this time. But I don't know. I think, I think people time.
0: did get hurt. I think it's very, we don't know that no one got hurt. And in fact, we probably do know that some people got hurt. There were some people who, you know, who lost significant amounts of money, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars as a result of this. You know, there's always going to be a point at which the trades are no longer torn up, even though they're clearly wrong. And there were some people just on the wrong side of that point. Um, So, yeah, there will have been losers. It's going to be hard to identify them. I don't think any journalists have identified the losers. Uh, Kathy, you don't care about these losers.
1: Well, listen, I I don't want to sound cold hearted. Um, No, I think I think it is important what you said. Like there's no Michael Lewis bestseller coming out of this because there's no victim. Right. Um, But, you know, there are people that lost money. But I, I would say, um, you know, I want to, th- I want to put this in the, uh, a different framework. Like, you know, people lose money when there's hurricanes or tornadoes and natural disasters, um, and it's, it's terrible for those people. But, you know, it's not like there's no way to um, anticipate that. We, that's why we have flood insurance, you know, things like that. So, I, I suspect that the many of the people who are big players in the, in the market. Um, understand like perceive and understand and even measure this risk the risk of the sort of infrastructure of the nyce itself risk
0: so so i can i can actually i can actually answer that question and the answer is there are many many people like deep market structure geeks who are hyper aware of this risk yes Um, but there is actually no way of hedging it hedging it there's no way of insuring against it the way the only real way of insuring against it is to, for the NYSE to get its shit together and to be efficient and one of the interesting things about your analogy with hurricanes is that just like hurricanes flash crashes are becoming more frequent and more damaging over time and especially since 2005 um, 2005 was when this thing called reg nms came out which was basically when you had this big proliferation of stock stock exchanges in the united states like they used to be just the nyse and the nasdaq now we have like 16 of them most of which you've never heard of and that was basically when stock exchanges went from being this kind of utility which allowed investors to try and trade with each other at mutually beneficial in a mutually beneficial way to being highly valuable for-profit enterprises that you know it, it wound up doing whatever the big banks and the big high frequency traders wanted them to do because that's where the money was yeah. and that's when hype that's when flash crashes started now flash crashes happen every day yeah there are i can tell you like Yesterday, on Friday, I don't know what stock it was, but I can guarantee you that there were a few stocks on Friday that just had weird glitchy flash crashes and their stocks fell enormously and then bounced back in in the course of a fraction of a second or maybe a couple of seconds. This happens all the time. It never used to happen before 2005. Very, very, very rarely used to happen
1: you're kind of proving my point like no, number one like what emily said somebody forgot to press the switch somebody forgot to do something else that's going to be automated tomorrow but then other problems are going to happen because of the complexity of the situation it's almost chaotic and it will lead to these flash crashes and the, i guess my point is that anybody who's working and 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 thriving in that ecosystem knows is sophisticated and knows that this is kind of a risk is happening and is measuring that risk
0: yes yes you're you're right the people who are work, who are thriving in that ecosystem are actually at the margin making money from it. they the high-frequency traders, the bankers, that kind of thing. The big losers, and there are big losers here, are the big real money investors. And this is the um, big beef that I had with Michael Lewis's bestseller, Flash Boys, right? When Michael Lewis wrote that book, he needed a, how to put this, like a sympathetic victim. Yep. And so he... In that book, he painted the victim as being like mom and pop investors who are being front run by HFDs. And the fact is that mom and pop investors are not the victim here. Mom and pop investors are just fine. The retail investors are just fine. The victim here are the really, really big global insurance companies, pension funds, pools of like real capital that have to be able to buy and sell billions of dollars worth of stock as part of their job. They lose money by trading in the stock market. The friction they see by running into these flash crashes, running into these HFTs, running into these front runners, running into this chaos, running into all of this chaos, which, by the way, I should repeat, is getting worse all of the time, is really large, quite measurable, runs into the billions of dollars, and no one really sees it because it's, you know. It's just a bunch of execution traders, at obscure pension funds who are tearing their hair out every day trying to work how to optimize their VWAP, you know, which stands for volume weighted average price. But like it's it's a hidden problem, but it's a very expensive problem and it's an unsolved problem. And it was a solved problem. And then various regulatory actions happens mostly around reg nms and various for-profit actions happened around the exchanges and it got much worse and i have a solution to this problem like the fact is that this isn't just a function of like you know there are more computers and more sophistication and less latency and that's just going to cause chaos like this is This is by design. The definitive book on this is called Darkness by Design. It's by um, this guy, Walter Matley. It's really good. And he really shows that all of this chaos is being designed and built in by the exchanges and the HFT so they can make more money at the expense of everyone else.
3: And those pension funds are filled with mom and pop type people regular normals
0: exactly and one of the points i made in, in in my review of that book was that like when we talk about small investors we think that's the little guy but in fact that's rich people People who are rich enough to be able to invest directly in the stock market are the rich. They're not the Mm. poor. The poor are the people who have like, you know, who are members of a union and have a pension fund. And then that pension fund is invested in, you know, the stock market and the pension fund is $100 billion. Those are the people who are losing out.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but can we distinguish for a minute between the systemic problem of more flash crashes happening for the reasons that you articulated and then... Uh, what happened with the NYSE you know, where, where somebody just didn't press a button. Those, those seem like different problems.
0: Uh, they are not different problems. Like, they do seem like different problems. You're absolutely right about that. But in fact, they're the same problem. And and what it comes down to is the thinness of regular trading. Like, the one place you never see a flash crash is at 9.30 in the morning or 4 p.m., right those are the only two times over the course of the trading day where you actually have like an efficient auction where you can trade in quantity between 9 30 and 4 you have this thing called continuous trading it's between 9 30 and 4 that you have flash crashes not only the big one in 2014 um, but all of the mini ones that happen every day and also the mini one that happened last week well It's a bit weird, right? What happened last week was there was no 9.30 a.m. opening auction. And you move straight into continuous trading. And without that anchoring mechanism of the opening auction, the continuous trading proved that it was completely incapable of actually dealing with the volume of orders that hit the stock market every morning all of these orders hit the stock market and the prices went haywire because the standard way that the stock market works on a millisecond to millisecond basis just cannot cope with that kind of volume what we want is a stock market that can cope with volume and the way you do cope with volume is you do what we did at 9 30 a.m and what we what we normally do at 9 30 a.m and what we always do at 4 p.m which is just have A big auction and say everyone who wants to participate in the opening auction or the closing auction everyone just get all your bids and we'll have a you know we'll find a market clearing price and that works twice a day and it works when you have like ipos there's a big opening auction where the stock goes public and it can take you know a couple of hours sometimes for that price to appear but when it appears it's a big market clearing price and everyone is happy and the solution to all of these problems, including the solution to the problem that Michael Lewis puts forth of like the little investors getting front run, is just have auctions. Don't do continuous trading.
1: First of all, I want to completely agree with you that the, the people getting screwed last week, but on, on a daily basis, are the big pension funds. I personally left my hedge fund because I couldn't sleep at night because my job was literally to front run hedge funds. Uh, front-run pension funds. But I think, importantly, I wasn't a high-frequency trading quant. I was a mid-frequency trading quant. (laughs) So I just want to make the point that even if we have many auctions during the day, I mean, there would have to be many. I don't think five would be enough. Like You could still front-run pension funds. So that problem is not going to go away. And the reason you can front-run pension funds, by the way, is because they say in their definitions how they're going to trade.
0: Well, well so, yes, yeah, so, some of the index funds do that. But the other reason you can front run pension funds is because there is a very, very public order book on the New York Stock Exchange. This is the way that continuous yeah. trading works, where, you know, a huge number of orders are public and everyone can see what where the orders are and yeah. where the bids are and where the offers are. And you can front run that. And in the, in the case of auctions, yeah, but at least you get rid of that problem.
1: You get rid of flash crashes, but not front running.
0: And you get rid of some front running, not all. Don't
1: worry.
3: Pensions are going away anyway. (laughs) That's a good
1: point, Emily. That's actually a really important point.
0: (laughs) But Kathy, the reason why we needed to have you on this week was not to talk about your, you know, to be regretted tenure at a hedge fund that shall remain nameless, but rather to talk about It's the algorithms. They're coming to get us again, and they're terribly racist. What's the latest version of this?
1: The latest version of this comes um, from the IRS. So the IRS decides with an algorithm who to audit. And they are deeply underfunded at the IRS. So the people that are in charge of the audits just don't have very much manpower. So they basically only do really easy things for the most part. I'm not saying they never do hard things, but um, they use this algorithm to sort of define a sort of easy wins. And, and what they do is, first of all, look for predominantly people that uh, qualify for earned income tax credit, EITC, which you only qualify for if you make the median salary or less. So it's uh, relatively uh, poor people um, and then on top of that, like if there's any kind of business income, they they throw you out because that would require too much hands-on um, manual work. And there's some kind of mistake that is commonly made that they look for. Um, some kind of credits, other credits being um, suggested that you're owed when you're when it's not true. And of course, I just want to preface this by saying, like the tax law is so complicated, it's really really easy to make mistakes. But at the end of the day. What what they've winnowed down is a group of people to audit super easily, and they know they're going to win every time, that they've, they know they've caught somebody. Those people happen to be much more disproportionately African-American than the average taxpayer. And so that was the study that was done.
0: In a weird way, I want to say that like the fact that there is this unintended disparate impact of the EITC claimants who get audited, and they are way more likely to be black than the percentage of black Americans in the population, is very bad, obviously, but it's also one of the reasons why the Treasury Department and the IRS cooperated in this study, handed over an enormous ream of, like, the full audit data for all of 2014. They they really, you know, did a lot of uh, they 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 worked with Stanford very closely here, and I feel that like it's so blatant, and the figures coming out of this study are so stark that maybe just maybe this will provide the kind of impetus to clean up this ridiculous IRS auditing algo. That if we didn't have this disparity, it would have just gone on like this forever
1: yeah, so number one, i just I just want to commend the people, the folks who did this work, and yeah, it's amazing that they got access to that data. This is exactly the kind of work I do. This is what I do at Orca, my my auditing algorithmic auditing company. The hard part, obviously, is getting access to the data. So it's amazing that they did that. They even use the same exact uh, race inference methodology that we use t- typically. And so, in other words, like there is no stated race on the IRS form as you uh, as you well know. So the way they inferred that black people were being audited more often is they sort of inferred the race of the audit targets using something uh, that is basically best guess at what you filled out in the 2010 census. Um, That's the sort of most efficient way of describing it. Um, And so good, good for them for doing this. But I do want to like back up for a second and just say like, number one, it's outrageous and easy to talk about the racism um, that is clearly here. I mean, because here it is, they've, they've, they found it, they measured it. But, you know, one of the reasons we talk about race as a category instead of class as a category is because race is a protected class under law, whereas class is not a protected class under law. In other words, and the reason I mentioned that is because like what this is really doing, even more than it's being racist is it's going after poor people uh, for audits. And I think, you know, since there's a correlation between race and, uh, and, and class, it's also going after black people, but it is much more directly going after poor people.
0: There is a massive spike. If you look at the chart in my newsletter this week, um, there is this ridiculous spike in the percentage of people who get audited, like around twenty thousand dollars a year, which, like, is just so intuitively obvious that if you wanted to catch the people who are cheating the treasury out of the most money, you would not audit people earning $20,000 a year. You would audit people earning $2 million a year. And
1: exactly. Yeah. So what is this story about? I mean, the story is about yeah, what we just said, but, but I think it, it sort of at a very high level, it is much more about the way that we have, uh, as a country, we've, um, you know, underfunded and undermanned uh, IRS so that p- rich people get away with tax evasion and poor people don't. Um, and we, we can pretend that we still audit people by se- by pointing at these poor people that we've found making mistakes. But, you know, I, di- I learned from this story this week that just because I've been like, I've had an, an accountant for the last year, a few years, and I've, you know, named myself as a private businesswoman. I'm never going to get audited. It's a protection.
3: <laughs> it's a wood. protection
1: to have accountants and to have a you know a business uh, on the side because no no manual uh, auditor is going to be assigned to my case. And I just think it's completely outrageous at that level that only poor people are getting audited. And I think that should be really the headline here.
2: Yeah, it also, I think speaks to the incredible complexity of our tax code. Where no normal human can do their own taxes if, if they're even a little bit complicated, um, and and you know I I think that's part of what causes these structural inequalities. If you have uh, part time work or as many people in the U.S. you know now are gig workers, uh, you know doing your own taxes is difficult, uh, or you might be paying an accountant who is not that good. So these mistakes are really easy to make and. People you know, at a higher income level have armies of accountants and lawyers who will keep them out of trouble, uh, but we just don't have the infrastructure for that if, if you're lower income.
0: Well, the infrastructure should be coming. There is a bill in um, Congress basically instructing the IRS to go out and build a you know file your taxes online at the IRS website which Emily is shaking her head saying like you know but the fact is I am I am, I have a little bit of optimism about this one like the optimal solution here and Emily I think you'll agree with me on this one is the the overwhelming majority of taxpayers don't file taxes at all that like the, the government knows exactly how much you earn because it's reported by your employer and they send you a thing in the mail every year saying like you have had this much money um, withheld from your paycheck Uh, this is how much you owe this is how much your refund is if you want the refund check just sign here that's your tax return we'll send you the refund check you don't need to file any taxes at all if you want to go through the whole palaver of filling out the whole tax return and working it out yourself you're perfectly welcome to do so but for most people you would never need to or want to and it just happens automatically that's the first best solution which happens in most sensible countries in the world um, the second best solution is at least have a free way of filing your taxes which you know at at the IRS which the IRS is now in the early stages of building and will obviously be better than TurboTax because TurboTax is terrible. But Emily, tell me why you were shaking your head.
3: Because it's not just that the IRS is underfunded and doesn't have the resources to audit wealthier people. And it's not just that they don't send you a bill and make it easier for you to file. It's the the whole tax po- tax code, everything needs to be thrown out. Because there are people who just are paying their taxes. They're not doing anything wrong. Like me, Felix, anyone who has a full-time job, your taxes get taken out of your paycheck. The government knows how much you owe, how much you paid. They know it all. For wealthy people who don't have jobs, who aren't full-time employees, the shenanigans are off the charts. The The way the tax code and tax laws are written, the um. There's so much you can do to avoid paying taxes that's perfectly legal. It wouldn't matter if the IRS had all the funds in the world to audit these people. There's a great piece by Evan Osnos in The New Yorker, maybe like two weeks ago, that kind of goes through all of this, how this, um, how the Gettys are avoiding paying taxes with trusts and shelters and, and having business meetings in Nevada instead of in California to avoid taxes in that state. I mean, it's just so... Everything, the unfairness is so baked into this system. It is appalling on so many levels.
1: So I would like to volunteer. um, And uh, if anybody who works at the IRS is listening, um, this is for you to um, help um, build an algorithmic auditing, uh, you know, system for all taxes, uh, tax returns. I'm going to help you guys figure out a better way of figuring out target audits um, because, yes, Emily is absolutely right um, that tax avoidance, uh, ver- ver- verging on tax evasion, is so rampant in the upper echelons of society. But there doesn't seem to be any algorithms that actually try to find those things. So here I am raising my hand. I will help develop that algorithm.
0: <laughs> so, um, actually, funny you should say that, Kathy, because Dan Ho, who's one of the authors of the paper who works at Stanford, and if you're listening, Dan, hello. Um, He emailed me and said, one thing to keep in mind is that these disparities stemmed from legacy systems at IRS, not any form of fancy AI, right? So this is the first thing to remember. This is not like some weird, like incomprehensible algorithm. It's a very basic flowchart. It's very clunky. 1960s technology, really. And then he went on to say... In fact, assessing the possibilities for machine learning is what let, led us to uncover these disturbing disparities. In other words, he's like, because if you look at the paper, he's like, if you do clever ML-like forest things, which, you know, I this is where I it started rapidly getting out of my depth, but Cathy understood it all. Like, you can be much better at targeting precisely those, you know, Whales who are evading taxes, rather, you know, the, where the real tax evasion happens, rather than the minnows in the EITC claiming classes.
1: I would even go further, Felix. You can like, you can not only find people who are straight out lying uh, with with better techniques, but you could also as an IRS, as an institution, figure out the loopholes, where are the loopholes, where are the new loopholes? Because that's, that is a kind of fraud detection ML that exists now. Like who's paying much less than we would expect them to pay given what, what they're telling us. That is a way of discovering the new loopholes, which are not typically illegal. They're just gray areas. So it would just be a way of detecting the existing loopholes. I think there's a lot of, a lot of potential in there.
0: I will say that the world's biggest tax loophole is one that the United States uniquely has closed. And the one reason why, and, and everything that Emily said is right about the rich evading taxes, and it's or avoiding taxes, I should say. Um, so a lot of that is, is legal. But the number one biggest thing that rich people do on in virtually every country on the planet, with the exception of the United States, is that they simply move their money offshore, or they move to a zero tax jurisdiction, like, you know, Switzerland, and boom, they pay no taxes. And it's very easy to do that. United States citizens uniquely cannot do that, because the United States taxes you on your global wealth and your global income and it doesn't matter where you live like you're still subject to US taxes and so while tax avoidance is indeed rampant among rich Americans there is a limit to how much they can do compared to rich people in almost every other country and i'm i would i'm going to come out and say that the very very rich Americans ultimately while they do avoid taxes end up paying a substantial amount of taxes that they wouldn't if they were any other nationality. Like, for for instance, Elon Musk, right? He is paying untold billions of taxes right now because he's done all of these share sales of Tesla, and it's very public, and he has to pay those taxes. If he was any other than that, if he wasn't a U.S. citizen, then he would just make sure that he was domiciled in some zero-tax jurisdiction when he did those share sales, and then he wouldn't pay any taxes.
1: So it's horrible, but not as horrible as it could be. How does that weigh
2: against uh, you know policies where Elon Musk is also getting incredible tax breaks that we allow as a matter of policy in this country because uh, there, there's political will to do it and to protect the rich as a protected class? Not literally protected, but...
3: The one thing I would add, too, about the um, the IRS going after poor people for filing their taxes is that it's just another example of how the United States makes it really difficult for lower income people to get the benefits that they're uh, entitled to while at the same time giving benefits to rich people all the time and not shaming them for it yeah, even though there's an intentional I mean, they should be
2: administrative <laughs> burden for poor people and and that is a, that is absolutely a matter of policy it's it's the sort of idea that if you're uh less wealthy you're more likely to cheat on these systems when we we all kind of know that uh rich people are the ones who are using these incredible tax avoidance schemes that, that sometimes veer into tax evasion.
3: Yeah. And the the one other thing I would say about that is that because there is this problem with auditing on the EITC, there people don't always file for it. They're like, oh, I don't want to be bothered. And so it discourages people from getting this money that it really helps lift a lot of Americans out of poverty. The EITC, for this fault of these audits. I mean, it's, it's a successful tax credit and people get thousands of dollars, you know, every year that helps them make ends meet, feed their family, whatever they need. You know what I mean? Um, so discouraging them from getting that money is, it's really shameful.
0: Let's move on to, I'm going to, the one thing I'm very bad at is remembering the names and pronouncing the names of drugs. So Kathy, can you drop, The names of some drugs into this here gab well you know
1: i was just gonna say what a fantastic segue um to (laughs) to the the the, i want to like push my book a little bit um which is called the shame machine and, and it's very related to what you just described. I would, I, I would describe as poverty shaming um, and putting administrative burdens on people and basically making them feel like they're not worthy and not el- actually eligible for the things that they are there. They should be ashamed for taking that stuff. Um, so the shame machine came out last March. Uh, one of the major themes in the book is uh, the fat shaming I experienced as a child and the sort of diet industry and the weight loss industry. Um, and so, when I just – I've been reading a, a, up a storm, and of course, because I wrote that book, people send me stuff. But I've been reading up a storm about Ozempic, Felix, the thing you forgot how to pronounce. Ozempic, Ozempic. is the newest okay. – uh, It's the newest um, weight loss miracle. And when I say the newest, uh, it's actually one of two. Um, diets don't work. They are, charge us money, and then they make us feel like we failed when they fail. Um, So we could go into that, but like, let's just talk about um, the things that, two things that do work for, for um, actual long-term weight loss. The first is bariatric surgery and the second is ozempic. And it's just, bariatric surgery is a big thing and not everyone should do it. Um, People who do it often end up having lots of vitamin deficiencies and it's of course actual surgery, um, which, which is real, even though it's laparoscopic and pretty safe now. Um, but Ozempic, that's just something like literally it showed up a few months ago and you just shoot yourself with a needle into your thigh once a month and you lose 35 pounds. And it seems like a complete miracle and it is kind of a miracle. So that's one thing to keep in mind, although it does make us question our notion of free will. Um, uh, but the other thing that's happening about it is the economics of it. Namely, it costs a thousand dollars a month. Um, so you can think about who needs such a uh, such a medicine because it's uh, it's actually primarily meant meant for diabetes, but it ends up like making people lose a lot of weight. Um, who needs that, who versus who can actually afford it? Um, and when is it covered by insurance the The, the situation now is that it's being used essentially by rich people in gyms. um and people like the gym culture folks um are are totally into it. And the folks that actually, probably would need it more, um, don't have access to it for the most part. I feel like
3: Ozempic just showed up on the radar. I had kind of saw a few headlines about people having to choose between their butts and their faces. And I was like, that's a weird headline, but I don't have time for this. I cover business. and then But then you wanted to talk about it. So I've been reading about it and it's just taken everyone by storm. There's all these stories of Hollywood actors saying like, I don't take it. I do take it. I took it, but I feel bad about it. Um, And then a piece in the New York Times saying, if you take it, your face will look really bad. So then you have to have not only pay $1,000 a month to inject it, which you have to do forever to keep the weight off, by the way, which sounds bad to me. Um, but then you have to have you pay thousands of dollars for the plastic surgery to fix what your happens to your face when you lose a lot of weight rapidly. And yet, I will say, I'm so bought into the shame that you speak of, Kathy, that I was like, should I do this?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, everyone's the thing about it is Emily, number one, everyone's bought into it. It's not it's not like, it's not a rare thing. It is part of our culture. <laughs> and 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 a, like a large part of it. And this is the irony of of a shot that makes you lose weight is that you're sp- it's supposed to be a moral failing if you have weight that you don't want, right? Mm. And yet, mm-hmm. and that's by the way to your point, like people aren't admitting they're taking it. They want people to think I lost this weight you know, honorably,
0: quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Because I'm mm-hmm. virtuous. I did the I, work. I did virtuous things I with ate my food. Clean. Yeah. There's another yeah.
2: thing I think we have in, in American culture that's just uniquely puritanical, which is that we think that there's some kind of moral virtue in suffering and we kind of build it into the system. So uh, if you happen to lose weight, the uh, you know traditional way pre-Ozempic via diet and exercise, there's uh, an idea that you... Uh, earned it somehow. And then if you mm-hmm. are able to lose it via just taking a shot, that you're cheating on some level, which is, I, th- I think,
1: morally backwards. <laughs> it is morally, absolutely morally backwards. And if you want to read 300 pages about this, that you definitely should read The Shame Machine. Um, but I want to back up a little bit and just take note. Um, I don't know if this is a related thing to me, anyway, um, that the, you know, Pediatricians Association of America, or whatever they're called, like recently put out new guidelines for childhood obesity, um, which basically says intervene immediately, um, including like at the age of six, intervene for a child that's overweight. What that's going to look like, even though they they say do it in in unstigmatizing ways, nobody knows how to do that. So what it is actually going to look like is putting six-year-olds on diets. And they also recommended Ozempic for the age of 12 and up. Um, So that's what it's going to look like. It's a shit show. But if you go even a higher level, I want to make the point that we don't know what, what is causing people to gain weight. We actually don't know. One thing that doctors finally agree on is that it is not a matter of willpower. It's some kind of environmental factor, possibly even related to the way we, um, the way we Do our farming, the you know the kind of fertilizer ingredients could be sort of screwing up our um, our our systems. We actually have no idea why it's happening, but the idea that we're going to sort of pull aside six-year-old kids and tell them to solve that problem that we don't know how to solve is actually disgusting to me because it is going to lead to a lot of shame.
0: There there is there is clearly if you look at if you look at photographs of Americans from it doesn't matter when the thirties, fifties, seventies, you know we were all as a country much thinner there was there is as you say kathy something societal going on here as like americans in general have got heavier over the decades and the solution to that problem does feel like it ought to be societal and happen at a big picture sort of top-down level rather than at a kind of finger-pointing, bottom-up level of, like, you're an overweight six-year-old, you know, get thee on a treadmill.
3: I was wondering if the um, the efficacy of Ozempic kind of helps move that notion, move the notion forward that um, weight gain and obesity is not a matter of pure will or individual responsibility. Like in, if there's some like silver lining there that, you know, doctors are kind of waking up to this finally. I, I think I just read a Times opinion piece on this. That yeah, there was a Times opinion piece it. on
1: this. Now, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I keep on coming back to that. I think I think the inherent reason that people feel um, virtuous when they shame fat people is that they are basically assuming and projecting this notion that you have a choice and you're making the wrong choice. So that notion of free will that you could exert your will but you're choosing not to and that's shameful, um, is an incredibly essential part of this. Yes, and so you'd think ozempic is obviously a, a shot like in your leg, it has nothing to do with your free will. It's changing your you know chemistry and for whatever reason making you lose weight. Um, Would that change people's mind about it being a free will issue? Well, I don't know, because like pregnancy also makes people gain weight, but nobody is like, oh, let's stop dieting then because it doesn't make sense to diet because we don't actually have choice over the matter. There's lots of things that makes us gain or lose weight. Lots of drugs, in fact, make us gain weight, you know, often antidepressants, but it hasn't changed our mind about fatness as a choice or weight as a choice. And I'm not holding my breath. Even though it would be better, I think we just enjoy shaming people too much. That's my cynical view.
0: Um, the, the money angle here. I did a little bit of Google research um, to look at how much Ozempic costs in other countries, and you will be shocked to hear, which is to say, you will not be shocked to hear that it's about a fifth, maybe maybe a quarter or a fifth of what it costs in the United States. Um, and this is just a standard thing that the way the drug manufacturers work is that no one will pay that much in other countries so they don't charge that much in other countries but people will pay that much in america so they charge that much here
1: it'll certainly be interesting to see as it's flooded the market in the next few months like what's the price going to be in in 5 a years a miracle drug that makes you lose 30 pounds 35
3: that's a $1000 yeah
1: it's going to be a it's going to be ch- a, like cultural ch- cultural cha- changing and maybe at some point you know going back to the original point which is the inequality of all this cuz if you think about it it's poorer people that that have more diabetes risks and actual diabetes and overweightness they're the ones who would actually could use it a lot better like more usefully rather than being a cosmetic issue and we'll see if they actually get access to it as the price goes down
0: should we have a numbers round um elizabeth do you have a number
1: uh,
2: Yeah, it's uh, $114,000. And that's the average salary for an employee at Mitsui and Company, which is a Japanese trading firm. And they just, as a matter of policy, decided that all of their employees can have side gigs. And they specifically have mentioned uh, YouTube Influencer as a potential side gig if you're a Japanese employee at what? this trading firm. So it's you know I I, I think this um, protest about not having side gigs is probably coming from Gen Zer employees, but uh, I, I have trouble imagining a similar firm in the U.S. doing this, saying you you can have your uh, YouTube influencer gig and still be employed by X trading firm.
3: Is that a way of they, they don't raise pay or something? They're like, we're not going to raise your pay, but you can have a yeah, second job. Yeah, they don't want to raise
2: pay. But I guess culturally, too, it's it's uh, become more popular for uh, younger employees to have side gigs. And so there's some demand for it internally.
1: But isn't the isn't Slate Money a side gig for you guys?
0: Exactly. Yes, Slate Money 100%. is a side gig for us.
1: You're going influencers.
0: <laughs> Shush. Kathy, don't tell the folks <laughs> at Axios, they don't know about this podcast. Um, uh, no, the, the classic example that really springs to mind here is Keith Gill, aka Deep Fucking Value on Reddit, who was, who was the great, you know, GameStop shill, and he was the one running up GameStop in the early months of 2021. And um, yeah, he had a day job working at like Mass Mutual, I think like as a financial wellness educator or something and then eventually when it when when it came out who he was they fired him to to elizabeth's point um i have to do this you know because i just have to i'm sorry but my number is five hundred and seventeen thousand. I knew it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Emily knew it would be. Emily, what I is five hundred and no seventeen thousand? Emily's like looking,
1: rolling her eyes, but I have no idea what this is. <laughs> <laughs> it's
3: the um, five hundred and seventeen thousand, which I had on my list of numbers, but I knew Felix would front run I it. Did too. <laughs> that I'm, is, I'm, I'm the
0: hyperfancy trader jumping in here in the numbers round, getting ahead of you.
3: It's the number of jobs added in January, um, more than double what anyone expected. Blockbuster job growth. Oh my God, job market hasn't been this good since nineteen sixty nine. Holy bananas, stop talking about recession number, right?
0: Right. So This is great. I just need to say a number ever. and then and then and then Emily <laughs> does my numbers sound for me.
1: <laughs> no, I actually saw that number. I didn't memorize it, but I was like one of the things that shocked me is that like the market went down as a result. Like isn't it good news?
0: Good news is bad news, Kathy. So this is this is one of the interesting things about about the jobs report, right? Is that or about interest rates in the Fed is that the Fed raising rates has had a really visible effect on tech stocks, on crypto, on Um, obviously on interest rates mortgage rates bond yields all of that kind of stuff it's had no visible effect whatsoever on the job market and the number of you know on the unemployment rate and and so yeah like this has become a finance game you know the, the higher this number goes the more rate hikes people expect and the more rate hikes people expect the worse that is for markets um, and it's got, you know, and the rate, there's this weird sort of internal loop between rate expectations and financial markets, and the employment market, the labor market, the real economy seems to just blithely go on regardless. Um, but Emily, what's what's your number? If your number isn't going to be 517,000, what's it going to be?
3: My number is um, 504 4- That's a percentage, 50.4%. That is... Oh, wait, wait. Can
0: I jump in and front run you? Fine. (laughs) Is this an office occupancy number, Emily?
3: That's correct, Felix. Ding, ding, (laughs) ding, ding. This is the highest that office occupancy rate has been since we all went home in... uh, Not all of us, I know. Since March uh, 2020. Um, So the offices are half empty or half full, depending on your perspective. And... um, I guess the castle, which tracks this data, you know, this is a new record. But it also shows that we're never going back, in my opinion, to the way it was. Offices will remain kind of half full or fa- half empty. But um, hybrid work is sort of here to stay at this point.
0: What, what I want to underscore here is this is not based on some theoretical maximum capacity of offices. This is just based on the pre-pandemic level. They index pre-pandemic to one hundred. And we are now at 50% of pre-pandemic. So everyone knows that offices weren't full pre-pandemic, but now they're only half as full as they were.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, Kathy, bring us home.
1: All right. All right. So um, I have a number and it's 11 out of 30. Um, So, in. Ooh, I like that. It, so, it's actually kind of two numbers. I kind of cheated, but you can think of it as a fraction <laughs> if you wanted. Um, in Summit County in Colorado, there's a huge number of ski slopes, and there's a 911 call center, and it's getting inundated with what they're calling ghost calls from people's iPhones or iWatches, maybe. because Oh, right. When you, go, when you, bang, when you bang the if, phone. It, it assumes that you've had a 911 emergency, and it calls the nearest 911 call center for you. And it's just people skiing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the call centers are like, we hate Apple.
3: Oh my God.
1: <laughs> so 11 out of 30 of a recent on a recent day, um, 11 out of 30 of them were ghost calls. And so it's really wasting their time. And at this point, they've decided to just ignore any automated calls from the slopes. They will pay, they'll pick up if somebody calls them on a cell phone.
0: Um, this happened to me, to my to my great shame and embarrassment. When I was in Ireland writing my book, I was driving back from the supermarket, and I threw my phone into the cup holder of my car. And I guess the cup hold- the car was a bit bouncy or something, and the phone just bounced against the edge of the cup holder five times or whatever it is. You press that button five times, and it makes an emergency call. And the next thing I know, I'm like. There's the 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 um, the car's audio system is like, do you have an emergency? Where are you? And I'm like, uh, sorry about that.
1: Yeah. So I mean, this is just another algorithm that is messed up um, with a false positive rate that's really really high. And you'd you'd think at some point Apple might have to pay the costs. The costs are being borne obviously by the nine one one call centers that are probably busy enough. So it's interesting to me to see like this kind of algorithmic fuck up
0: i think i think apple will learn about skiing you know and we'll and we'll manage to find a way to try and reduce false positives for skiing but also i do think that the automated calling from apple watches and phones has already saved lives that the true positives are incredibly valuable and that it's actually worth having a certain number of false positives in order to get those true positives. Um, you know, the the exact ratio is one for actuaries and mathematicians like yourself. Just to be clear, but, I but mean these, I totally
1: the, agree with you that true positives are really great. Um, but it, you know, even that one call center was saying that if they're tied up with false with ghost calls all the time, they can't actually do their other work. So they're actually failing the point, those right? people.
0: Uh Kathy O'Neill, obviously thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on. It's great to have you welcome back anytime you want. Um, thank all of you guys for emailing us, slatemoney at slate.com. Thanks to Anna Phillips for producing, and we will be back next week with even more Slate Money. There was an etiquette list on New York Magazine. It had a 100- hundred. Or more than a hundred different items. I'm sure you can pick one, Emily, to roll your eye at. Which one are you going to pick?
3: Um, I tweeted about one of them that's actually relatable. A lot of them were like etiquette for meeting celebrities and talking to celebrities. Which <laughs> what? Like wh- who reads? Uh, um, but you are talking was... to a celebrity
0: right now, Emily. Kathy O'Neill Wait, is a celebrity.
3: You are three of you are celebrities in my book. So <laughs> thank you. Um, so okay. This is the rule. It was rule 94. And here it is. It's okay to email, text, or DM anyone at any hour. Yes. Okay, go. No. yes. What? Yes. Okay. Felix is yes. Elizabeth's no.
0: I couldn't. So so Corey Seeker put out an e- sub stack about this. And he was like, this <laughs> one is true. I, I disagree with half of them, but I d- agree with this one. I'm 100% with Corey on this. Like... <laughs> the onus is on the recipient. At if you don't want to be disturbed, <laughs> if you don't want to be disturbed, just set your phone to do not disturb. It is the easiest thing in the world. No. Let people communicate when they want to communicate.
1: No, I kind of agree no. with Felix. No, no. I, I agree.
2: Yeah, I disagree.
0: So Kathy's with me. Um, Elizabeth, why? Why are you disagreeing?
2: Well, I think very specifically, I'm thinking about work scenarios where people are calling yes. or texting your, their colleagues because it sets an expectation that. Uh, workers should be available 24 seven, even if your phone is off. Yep,
0: so this is 100% exactly right. where I, where I disagree. Like you, the, the expectation should not be there. For instance, this is, this is something that I run into a lot because I work at night a lot. I find my days very distracted. And so when I do my actual writing of my columns, I generally do that quite late. And often I put my column to bed quite late on the Tuesday night. And then what I need to, on a Thursday night rather, and then what I need to do is I need to fire off a request to the visuals team saying, can, can I get some illustrations for this? And the obvious thing for me to do is to just drop the request into the visual Slack channel and say, guys, I have some illustrations I need. And then when they wake up, they see it and they go, oh, Felix has some illustrations and they can get on it. But instead, because of this ridiculous thing about the onus being on the sender rather than the receiver... I need to go into the Slack settings and like time the request for some point in the morning so that <laughs> so that the receivers don't think that I'm expecting them to be awake in the middle of the night. I'm not expecting them to be awake in the middle of the night. I just want that to be there when they wake up.
1: Felix, I couldn't agree more. And I'll just I'll just say that like for for me it's like you're it's not about the time of it. It's the, it's the it's the tone of the of the message itself. You know, if if I am writing to someone at two in the morning saying, "Please do this for me," I, like I won't just say, "Do this for me." I'll say, "Take your time. Like in the next six days or so, can you? Would you mind doing this?" It, and so, in other words, you can just frame it as like, obviously, this is not to be done at two in the morning, but I don't have a problem with sending it at two in the morning.
3: I think when you're an employee and someone above you in seniority or whatever sends some kind of message over slack specifically or maybe in an email too although emails less used at work these days it makes you anxious it just does it's it's not a good practice
0: well, if you're not for, paying for attention managers. to slack then how can you be anxious about it i was just it? gonna
1: say i never signed up to slack because i was like fuck slack why would i <laughs> yeah, fucking no. sign up to slack it's like having someone in my head why would you do that well, I mean, you have to do it if you have a full-time
3: job. Yeah, but you don't have to check right it right now. Not till you're. But at you work. get notifications, and if you don't check it, turn off notifications. Things come up. As someone who works in the news, it's like you need to be aware of what's going on because sometimes a legitimate issue does arise off hours, and you need to be aware of it. So there's like that very delicate balance in terms of like people communicating those those news stories and those issues to you, and and I think you have to take real care about about. Reaching out to your employees after hours because it it sets up some dangerous precedents. And I will say, Felix does a lot of slacking after hours, and it it, it it's
0: what? <laughs> uh, d- d- am anxiety. I stressing you out by by slacking I mean, after hours?
3: I, maybe it's a very maybe it's personal for me. But like, if I see that there's some news breaking at 9 p.m., I'm like, oh, what should I do? I should do something. I don't have to do something though. I'm not on the clock. No, do I really you don't have to do, something? To do anything. It's like we just do
0: to, we it's, just want to drop it into th- the channel.
3: It's 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 not, yeah, I seem, really, really fundamentally d- I disagree with this rule. <laughs> <laughs> I think DMs are different, like a Twitter DM or something. You can send me one at any time. It doesn't matter, obviously. Like, they're not important. Um, but Slack is different. And Elizabeth is with me.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's also it just the <laughs> intrusiveness of the channel. I've had clients who call me at 11 p.m. Uh, oh no I calling is different is... you can't okay call. phone calls
0: no no, phone calls 100 percent. we can all agree on phone calls yeah right but this is precisely why phone calls were not on that list
1: Yeah, these are all ignorable media although i, I again slack is the worst so i, I really sympathize with that
3: <laughs> so okay so um it's a tie on this rule rule 94 yeah but email elizabeth us. and i are right
0: slate money at slate.com is are you with are you with felix and kathy or are you with elizabeth and emily we uh you guys the listeners are the tiebreakers so let us know so send us your emails and thank you for listening to slate plus